Welcome to the Early Link Podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. As usual, you can catch us on the airwaves on 99.1 FM in Portland on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts. Today, I'm speaking with John Nemo, Associate Professor of Early Childhood Education at Portland State University and one of the producers of a new short film called Reflecting on Anti-Bias Education in Action, The Early Years. I'm also speaking with Veronica Reynoso, who is a teacher featured in the film. She currently teaches preschool in Seattle, Washington. Veronica and John, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Very excited, Raphael, to be here to share our film. Yeah, excited to share more about anti-bias education. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So the film is a it's a short piece. It's a 50-minute film. It just released last week, April 1st. John, my sources tell me that the last anti-bias education film was produced in 1989. Is that right? Yep. Either 1989 or 1988. But about then, our colleague, Louise Derman-Sparks, who's pretty well known internationally for the anti-bias education approach, was the creator of that film. And, uh, you know, it was about 30 minutes. Uh, you can still find it on the web, and it's sort of indicative of the time of video and sort of the colors getting washed out. <laughs> A grainy old video on YouTube somewhere? Uh, yeah, somewhere there. But it had an incredible impact at that time. Really what it was doing was introducing this idea, this approach of anti-bias, what it was called curriculum then, now education, to the world. It was exactly the same time that they released the first book, Anti-Bias Curriculum, which is one of the biggest sellers that NAEYC has. I think we're talking about a million copies. Right. They just recently released uh, sort of the third version of that book. Okay. So it really had the job of introducing this idea to the world and as an alternative to the idea of multiculturalism, which had become a little bit washed out and meaningless as a term at that time. Talk about the impact from that film. How did it inspire you to make the one that you just released last week? Well, my colleague and I, uh, Debbie Lee Keenan, had been doing a lot of workshops working together over the years. And of course, we were constantly asked, what does this look like in practice? Because people want to see, not just hear. And uh, she had talked a little bit about wanting another film because we had both used this film, but it was, of course, getting pretty old and dated. There are maybe one or two other films, again, pretty dated, maybe 20 years or more ago that existed. But otherwise, there really wasn't anything other than the more generic professional development films, which were mostly talking heads, you know, experts talking over images of children, but no real action from the classroom. So it really came out of a need from teachers to be able to get some sense of what does this really look like in the classroom. So that film had an impact on us of sort of introducing us to the ideas, but Really, a lot of the scenes in it were, um, some of them were real and some of them were staged. Sure. Again, probably more talking heads than we would have liked because it was more of a training film. But we wanted something that was more provocative and would engage people in conversation rather than the typical training professional development film. Yeah, that's something that I appreciated about the film. It was, we're really seeing what it's like in the classroom, hearing the kids participate hearing what it's like for teachers who are working with children, very hands-on practical tool, it seems like to me. Veronica, what was it like to be in the film and participate in the filming process? It was a really incredible opportunity to really showcase something that I feel strongly about. Like I think everybody should be teaching anti-bias, anti-racist education in their classrooms because 
these are ideas and theories that children are building from the very beginning, even before they enter my classroom. So being a part of it was an honor, especially I saw the 1989 version in college. (laughs) And I remember sitting in my classroom and even then, which that was 2009, I remember sort of raising my eyebrow and being like, hmm, some of these ideas feel a little outdated right now. So it was really great to be a part of this project that I had seen in college and to show that this work is continuing, that it's ever evolving. And I hope there continues to be more work around it and that there's another one in a year, two years, three years, because children and each generation that comes, like I tell the children in the classroom every day, your teachers too, you're teaching me the same way that I am here to teach you. So yeah, it was really exciting to be a part of the project. In the film, you talked about, there was a line that you said that anti-bias education is about what kind of human you want to be and about developing empathy toward others. Could you say more about that and what that means for you as an educator? How does it show up in your classroom? I think that preschool, I feel like growing up and being in college and within the 10 years of being an educator, anytime I tell someone that I am a preschool teacher, I often get met with the words, oh, that's cute. Yeah. (laughs) To me, working with children is more than cute. (laughs) That's just the tiniest sliver of the job. Children are going to be adults someday. And I honestly do believe that we need to start having these conversations with kiddos from the very beginning. I think about even who I am as a person now. And so much of that stems from my memories of childhood things that I went through, experiences that I had. So it's very much a part of my philosophy as an educator to have these sorts of conversations with kiddos. Being a person who is first-generation Mexican, being born and raised in the south side of Chicago, and moving to Seattle, where my culture is definitely not as predominant, it was very strange how a lack of my personal culture can create even more of an appreciation for it. Like I wanted more, I wanted to really embrace it. And I think that helped me cultivate my own identity and made me want to really help children cultivate their identity from the very beginning. Right. You've talked about your commitment to anti-bias education, to anti-racist education, and that's been a journey for you. If you look back to when you first got started, it kind of introduced to this idea, what was really helpful Aside from the 1989 film, but what was really helpful for you to move further along that lines and make sure that it was those ideas and concepts were part of your your teaching? And what was that journey like for you? It's tricky. It's a hard moment to pinpoint because if I really think about it, it's always been there. It's just a part of who I am. I think that a big part of that journey is sort of letting go of the teacher role. I feel like you're told that teachers are supposed to be more like directed. And I've come to learn to sort of let go of power and share power rather than holding onto it for myself and really help children create their own sense of power. So I think it's just been really a part of me and it's been more learning how to be my authentic self every moment that I'm in the classroom. Because if I'm able to show that I'm confident in my identity and who I am, that will carry on to the kids and that they will feel like they can be unapologetically themselves around me 
around others. And hopefully that carries on with them throughout their lives. John, I wanted to ask you about, first of all, the medium. I know this is the second film that you worked on. And why do you think it's important to use film as a way to reach your audiences? That's one question I have. And then I have a follow-up for you after that. Yeah. So the most obvious thing is, of course, you get to see it rather than hear about it. And so you're taken into this world and hopefully captured by the curiosity and capacity of young children to really try to make sense of what they're seeing around them. I think there's also a certain aesthetic with film. It's beautiful. And I think the movie, the film is very emotional. So there's an emotionality about it that's very different from reading something in a book. So that's a couple of the things that I really find important. And I also think it it enables us to focus in on characters, in this case, the children, but also the teachers, because we really wanted to honor teachers as decision makers. They're the ones in the classroom. They're thoughtful. They're observing. They're trying to figure out what's the best way to respond to the questions children have about diversity and bias. I think those interactions, the teacher-child interactions in the film are really pretty powerful. And there are several examples in there where you see teachers leaning into difficult topics or conversations with children. And those might feel uncomfortable for other adults who might be watching the film, whether they're topics around disability, race, or gender. And I'm sure that you might have even heard from some teachers or parents who say that young children, you know, maybe they shouldn't be talking about these kinds of things or uncomfortable subjects in the classroom or at such a young age. What would you say to them? And how would you respond to questions like that? Well, I'm convinced that adults have more difficulty thinking about and talking about difference, whether it's gender or gender expression or social class, race. It's the adults who haven't had maybe the opportunity to explore the questions that they're curious about much earlier in their lives, whereas children are much more open to complexity. They're much more curious. They're trying to figure out who they are in the world. You know, I do understand parents, teachers, they want to keep children safe. We all want to keep children safe. And obviously, in this work, we pay attention to where children are developmentally. But if you observe children, you'll see that they are taking in what's around them. It's not as if they're in a vacuum. They're observing, they're asking questions, and it's more a matter of paying attention to those questions and following up on them. I think the other thing is that we have to get away from this idea that somehow teachers are neutral or somehow are objective. Right. We are engaged in enculturating children just like parents are. And when you say you're neutral, that just means you're basically supporting whatever's the status quo. So if we're saying that there's bias in the world, that there is racism, then by not responding to children's questions, by not bringing up these issues, you're sort of allowing the status quo to go on. And of course, children are left to the media and try to make sense of things by themselves. And I think the other thing, you know, what I would say to folks, and I have said to folks, is, yep, this can feel risky, but ultimately as a teacher, you're driven by the ethics of our profession, you know, to do no harm. It gets as basic as that. Yeah. In my work, I talk a lot about the Convention on the Rights of Children, that there's this basic responsibility we have to children to enable them to be fully included and to be really visible for them and their parents, their families, to feel visible in the classroom. So you really have no choice, I think, but to pay attention and to be really thoughtful about the way in which you engage with these topics. 
Veronica, do you have comments, thoughts on that as a teacher working with children every day? Absolutely. I think that John really got to that a little bit more articulately than I did because that was a big a big part of letting go of power rather than holding on to it as an educator. Being a preschool teacher, being an early childhood educator is deeply personal. And this idea of being neutral, no one is neutral. So I think, you know, that's a part of being authentically yourself in the classroom and helping children build that confidence and sharing their identity. I remember we had a meeting once in our class. Lots of kids were sort of talking about gender roles and who Like in the drama area, kids were talking about how, oh, the mommy's staying at home while the dad goes to work. This was coming from a child whose mom went to work and actually dad stayed at home. So that was interesting to see in their play. So we talked about it. And I remember a parent sharing with me, children are like connect the dots. So it's up to us as their teachers and their parents to give them as many dots as we can to support them rather than them making very loose connections on the information that they're just, because they're going to connect dots they have, regardless of what we give them. So we want to give them as much support as we can. Yeah, just building on what Veronica said is, I think that part of this work is definitely building a relationships with parents and families. We wish we could have projected that more explicitly in the film. There's always limitations to what you can do in the film. But I think Debbie and I see this film as, a discussion point. So by screening this film, showing this film, looking at it as a staff or even with families, we encourage people to use it with families. It can be a dialogue about what you see in this film and why or why not you'd be able to raise these issues or engage in that kind of curriculum. So seeing the film and screening the film doesn't mean that's what you would do in your particular classroom or school because every context is different. And I know that all of the teachers, they come from three different classrooms in three different schools, there's been a lot of work done in building relationships with the families, being very explicit about the values and goals of the school, communicating regularly about what teachers are seeing and about what they're intending to do into the curriculum. So sometimes when people might look at the film and say, well, I can't imagine doing that. What about the parents? Well, actually, the parents have been part of that conversation. There's a scene in there where the children are talking about Black Lives Matter. That was children who brought that into the context right? and who were part of that discussion all along because that's what they were seeing in their community in San Francisco. So there has to be this sort of ongoing dialogue with families, of course. There's a theme of empowerment, child empowerment and family empowerment. It's an important part of the work. And one of the things that stood out for me was this idea of creating space or creating a foundation for children to be advocates for themselves within their family, within their school community, within their broader community. Can you talk about that concept a little bit more? Veronica, do you want to start with that? Yeah. I mean, we as humans, I think it is wonderful to feel empowered. We often hear people talk about children being autonomous and Yes, we do want children to be autonomous. And I think a huge part of autonomy is also then to build your autonomy for the greater community in which you live. So I think, you know, you're really supporting these children to be confident so that then they can support others in the world around them. I often feel so proud and happy of the work that we do when I hear kiddos 
who later have their younger siblings and their parents are telling me, you know, so-and-so started their first day of kindergarten and they noticed that someone was being bullied around and they stepped in and stopped it right away. I really think that that is coming from all these conversations that we're having with them in the classroom, the connections that we're building with their families, because we don't want this work to end in the classroom. We want this message and these conversations to continue at home. It can't just be happening in one place in a little vacuum. It's something that has to go with them and continue. So yeah, we really want to empower children so that ultimately they can use those same tools to uplift and empower others. John, additional thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think we begin with this sort of goal of children having a really positive sense of self and then learning about others. But we also go on to thinking about what kind of tools do children need to be able to identify when something isn't fair and then also how to act to make change. So I think it is true that there is this belief that children are moving into the community and they can contribute their ideas in a different way of seeing things. So it definitely is empowerment on the sense of you can see a different way of responding to other people. You can stick up for yourself and for your friends and you can identify bias when it's happening. Now, of course, we're not putting all the responsibility on young children. Adults have that primary responsibility, (laughs) but they are, as they move into school, are spending a lot of time with their peers and engaging in these interactions. And I've seen this happen even with my own children about how they're able to talk about diversity between themselves and other people in a kind of very easygoing and everyday kind of way because they're used to doing that and they can be very clear about when something is not fair, when something is happening that shouldn't be happening. You mentioned earlier this idea that kids are just naturally curious. They tend to be more comfortable with having some of these conversations and that it's the adults who are often uncomfortable. So when you say that we're not going to put all the responsibility on children, but we're going to put some responsibility on adults, is part of that adults need to learn how to stay curious or go back to remaining curious like they did when they were younger? or Because it seems like adults then have to be very conscious about this learning mindset that they need to resurface in themselves. Well, I think this is a fundamental disposition of teachers to be curious, you know, and we see that in all the teachers in the film. This goes for anything a teacher does. You can't be a teacher alone. You have to be teaching and learning together. And I believe we can view children in the same way. They are both teachers and learners together. Teachers have a basic responsibility to understand who they are in the world, what is their identities. And that's one of the goals of this film was teachers being able to say, who am I? Who do I take into the class with me? What are my social identities? What are my personal identities? So they've done some work learning about who they are, feeling comfortable with who they are and bringing that into the classroom in a kind of a powerful way that allows them to then engage with young children's curiosity So I think that's one of the great things about early childhood educators is that we recognize the importance of learning and being curious and we're not so stuck in our primary role being providing information and sort of more obvious role of teacher. Right. Veronica, did you have comments on that? Yeah, I think that that is one part. And I think that another part, aside from the curiosity, is that I don't know where it happens, 
or when, but I feel like there comes this mind shift at some point where tension becomes this thing to fear. For me personally, I see moments of tension as some of the, and discomfort as some of the greatest opportunities to grow and to learn about one another. I know a lot of people who are very conflict avoidant. And for me, those are like the relationships I have where I feel most confident and secure, people that can come to me with conflict. So I think there's a little bit of that going on along with the need to stay curious is that let those moments of tension happen, sit in discomfort, sit in that tension and watch how you can grow and unfold, whether it's in childhood or adulthood. You shared so much of yourself and your classroom in the film that was really wonderful to see. And I wanted to thank you for that. Is there anything you didn't get to say in the film about anti-bias education that you would want people to know? It's hard. It's not easy. There are moments of tension and there's no run right way to do it. There might be moments where you're not sure what to do. And the great thing about working with children, and I think that you should be able to do anywhere, say, you know what, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that. It should be just a part of life and things can get messy But I think that it's really important to be able to learn together and have these conversations just as everybody. Anti-bias education is all about being yourself and sharing yourself. And that's why it was such a great opportunity to work with John and Debbie, because there's just something magical about people who have worked in early childhood where I tell people that I'm an introvert. And anyone who has ever been a teacher worked in early childhood is just like, you? No. (laughs) And I'm just like, it's because I work with early childhood educators and we like play with one another and we're just authentically ourselves around another. So that's the great part. John, was there anything that got left on the cutting room floor that might have made it in if you had had a different cut? Well, this film was meant to be 25 minutes long and the original cut was 65 (laughs) minutes long. And we sort of came down. We have a lot more film and we're going to actually have sort of extended versions of some of the vignettes on our website for people to be able to use as teaching tools. One of the things that we hoped was in the film was that people would see themselves in the teacher. They would find someone they could identify with and find this work accessible rather than magical, that the teachers aren't necessarily needing amazing resources to be able to do the work they're doing. They do have the support of their administration. I think the other thing is that, and I think this does come through the film, is that it is serious work. You know, we are talking about racism in the world. We're talking about classism. We're talking about sexism. So these are teachers who understand the way systemic oppression works. And while they may not be talking about in those ways with young children, they would be engaging with conversations with parents and with colleagues about these. So these are teachers who have done the work in terms of understanding what's happening and then thinking about what they can do in the classroom. I suppose the one thing, and I alluded to it earlier, that I wish was stronger was the connection to families. And we're actually, if someone has some money out there they want to donate, We're already thinking about a second film that would focus on families and allow us to look at that interaction with teachers and also to think more about very young children, infants and toddlers, because obviously this doesn't all begin at four years of age or five years of age. Infants and toddlers are already beginning to learn about who they are and to notice differences. So they're kind of two pieces that I wish were stronger. I think there's a lot of complexity in there. There's a lot of layers in the film. 
This is a, a question for both of you. We're seeing new programs being developed, community partners moving into early childhood, being more intentional about early childhood and what they're offering kids and families. And a lot of times communities are asking hard questions around their instructional approaches, their curriculum, how they want their classrooms to be designed. What advice would you give to people who are jumping into early childhood around anti-bias education, want to use this kind of framework in their classrooms? What do they need to consider? What do they need to know and why? I kind of said it a little bit earlier where there is not one way to do it. That's really important to know. The anti-bias goals should be used sort of as like a loose framework. Who is in your school? Who's not in your school? Different ways of learning all has to be taken into consideration and really crafting it for your community. And even when you do it one year, it's going to be completely different another year. So it's really important to maintain that flexibility and really push for continuing the work in the classroom, but to let it flow naturally, but to really provide the support so that teachers can continue delving into the research so that children can see themselves in books and see that they're represented. But yeah, I think the bottom line is that there really is no one right way of doing it. John, comments on that? Yeah, I think that at the most basic level, teachers have to be good listeners and observers and that if you're creating a program, you've got to provide time for teachers to be able to listen to children and to talk with each other about what they're hearing the children say. While we didn't try to project one kind of teacher or one kind of approach, in thinking about anti-bias education, the most effective curriculum is going to be built from knowing the children and knowing the community. So not just the children in your classroom, but also the neighborhoods they're from, uh, the cultures they represent, the languages they speak. I think you see a lot of examples of where that becomes the source of the curriculum or the way in which the teachers are building the curriculum. So there are a lot of programs out there that maybe have packaged curriculums that they're expected to be using. Those could be useful tools, but they can be also problematic because they are standardized, even if it's great curriculum. The person who wrote that book doesn't know your community and your children. Right. So you have to have some way in which the teacher is given the power and the time to be able to also do some development of curriculum themselves. I know here in Oregon, Preschool for All is beginning, and I think there's a lot of discussion. I was I actually showed the Voices of Children film way back four years ago, one of the kickoffs about saying, well, what is quality education? Let's not go to a curriculum manufacturer as the beginning place. Let's think about who children are and what kind of human do we want them to be or do they want to be as sort of the basic. I think there's a lot of different ways you can approach it, but being able to listen to children, giving them the opportunity to speak, having good materials that reflect who they are and who their families are, having time to have conversations with families. These are really important elements of any early childhood program, particularly one that's going to take a, an anti-bias approach. Is there an example that you could talk about where you saw a classroom or a school community adopt an anti-bias education framework or lens or way of operating and how that changed the classroom, how it changed teaching and learning? You know, I think typically teachers have some underlying qualities of being excellent teachers that they bring to the work. I've certainly seen teachers 
have this aha about what children are noticing about diversity. And it's really interesting because I've spoken with teachers and I've worked with teachers when I was the director of a school in New Hampshire who would say, well, I'm not seeing those questions or I'm not seeing children interact in this way. And I would say, well, let's pay attention. Let's really pay attention to what's happening in the classroom. Maybe record the questions you're coming up. And you'll see teachers be amazed because they're hearing toddlers asking questions that are relevant to difference. They're noticing children paying attention to each other or noticing skin color, noticing a difference in language, trying to make connections to a parent who comes in who looks similar or different to one of their friends. It's almost like kind of the light bulb goes off and people are going like, wow, I'm seeing all this data. It's almost like my lens wasn't allowing me to pay attention. It was almost like I was keeping naive in a way and not seeing what children were noticing. So when people see that, I think it shifts the way in which they use children's books, the kinds of books they would select. It changes the way in which they think about dramatic play, which, for instance, the dramatic play area can be so stereotypically reinforcing gender roles, but it can be used in a very different way. You see differences in how Teachers get much more flexible about the kinds of materials they use and even the kinds of questions they'll ask children or the way they might participate in their play. They become aware of things. One of the things I hear teachers going, you know, I notice that I just regularly point out to children whenever they're wearing new clothing or a new pair of shoes, which of course has a social class implication. And they sort of going like, well, how could I shift I want to notice that child, but what could I be saying that's a little bit different? Or uh, maybe I'm always uh, selecting how we go off to playtime based on whether they're a boy or a girl. These can be kind of little things that people sort of become aware of. But I think that it does affect the overall quality of the teaching because of this responsiveness to children and paying attention to who they are in terms of their family their culture, their language. So you see that that flow over. And I, get, I think, as we talked about earlier, you see teachers getting much more curious. Instead of, I'm here to teach ABC, I'm here to really learn about children and see what they can show me about the way the world works and how you can empathize and how you can interact in ways that are fair and responsive to your friends. Veronica, did you have any comments on that? You know, I think that earlier in my teaching career, like I would have maybe shied away from the question, hey, Veronica, you know, what does that sign say in the illustration? You know, I think of like a moment where I'm reading a book about Martin Luther King with a child and maybe first year teacher Veronica would have stuck to like, oh, let's just continue reading the story rather than reading the sign that says no black people, no Mexicans. Like I remember, you know, reading that for the first time and the kids are like, what does that mean? And maybe once again, first year Veronica would have been like, "Mm, let's continue reading. Whereas now I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. So I think, you know, definitely more curiosity, wanting to give children more information, ready to dive deeper. That's been such a huge impact for me and I hope for other educators to come. If people want to watch the film, where can they find it? Well, you can go to uh, www dot antibiasleadersece.com. All right. So antibiasleadersece, 
Facebook.com, sort of one word. And if you go in there, it's there for live streaming. We were very fortunate to get some funding from the Tyler Rigg Foundation, who had seen Louise Dermot Sparks, our colleague on uh, the PBS NewsHour. We're talking in 2017. This is how long things take. Yeah. So they supported us and we wanted to make it available for free. We have it encaptioned in Spanish and English and uh, soon in Chinese. So we think we'll be able to reach a lot of folks. And there is also a guidebook for facilitators and for viewers. So we imagine that college teachers, directors of programs will use this with folks. So we've got broken down by every scene and every vignette in the film, questions and resources about what you could do also to help you to view the film and sort of provoke you to think a little bit more. And the response has been amazing. We're hearing from all over the country and, of course, requests to introduce the film. And we usually do that with one or two of the teachers featured in the film. We've heard from places like Israel, China, Australia. So really interesting to see the way that that's flowing around. We're going to eventually have DVDs for folks who maybe have problems with streaming. Sure. We're going to be doing that through Exchange Press, but for the moment, it's there and it's available, and we're trying to get the word out as best we can. All right, we'll share that link with our audience as well. Veronica and John, it's been so good to have you on the podcast today. Really great talking with you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much. Wish on every shooting star that you still come back to This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit, sign up for our newsletter, or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.